the National Archives podcast series, The Final Whistle, The Great War in 15 Players, a London rugby club at war, 1914 to 1918, presented by Stephen Cooper. I've entitled the talk, A London Rugby Club at War, 1914-18, which is the uh, does what it says on the tin title. It's really about this book here, which is more creatively titled The Final Whistle, because the men I've written about are those who didn't hear the final whistle at the end of the war. Uh, The Great War in 15 Players, and there is a clue as to what the book might be about. Just to set a bit of context, it's a fantastic quote, uh, which I love. It was written by an Italian man who reviewed my book in a blog, and he said, forget about battles, weapons and strategies. Focus on men, on their stories, and they will lead you to discover the undiscovered. Now, I imagine most of the people in this room will uh, empathise with that because, after all, most people here are researching men and the people uh, they came to find out about. But I thought, very perceptive phrase, and we will get, for the next four or five years, an awful lot of battles and strategies and weapons. Uh, I prefer to talk about the men. I think they're simply more interesting. See if you agree. Uh, Rostin Park, a rugby club which is currently headquartered no more than two, three miles from here, was founded in 1879. Now, I grew up in the 20th century when 1879 wasn't so far away. Nowadays, of course, it's two centuries ago, um, but it was the same time as Rourke's Drift in South Africa, so Michael Caine and a bunch of Welshmen staunchly defending against thousands of Zulus. It was also when the British Army was in Afghanistan. Now, in 2007, if you remember when the media discovered that Prince Harry, who is a patron of the the rugby football union and a prince of this realm, was serving in Helmand with his household cavalry unit, they filmed him kicking a rugby ball around with his colleagues. Uh, And that footage was beamed around the world on broadcast TV in colour and on the internet. So, Victorian engraving... Colour, photographs and film on the internet. Yeah, media and technology has moved on, but we're still in Afghanistan as our civilization progressed. On the left, you'll see a cartoon from Punch, uh, that late lamented magazine that sadly was not funny enough to keep going, um, but at the time was all the rage. Uh, and Mr Punch is sternly addressing a football player. This is the round ball game. Uh, professional association player, as the caption calls him. And he's saying to him in a very stern manner, no doubt you can make money in this field, my friend, but there is only one field where you can get honour. And in very, very small type at the bottom, explaining what the joke is about, the council of the Football Association proposed to carry out the full programme of the cup competition, just as if the country did not need the services of all its athletes for the serious business of war. Football tried to keep going. It was a professional game. Those who played it, they, don't earn the squilli- they didn't earn the squillions that people earn now. They were basically trying to earn a cross to keep the family together. Clubs were businesses. They were trying to keep the turnstiles going. On the other hand, you see this recruiting poster from December of 1914 uh, exhorting that rugby union footballers are doing their duty. Over 90% of enlisted. And the small quotation from the Times there says that All of the England rugby players who took the field last season have now joined up. Uh, 26 of them were to die during this war. But essentially rugby was being held up as an example to all other athletes. Uh, Why don't you join? Football versus rugby. Football was very, very slow to join up. They actually carried on playing until spring of 1915. Rugby, August, September 1914, they were right there. 
that will have consequences for those two games later on, as we will see. Rostin Park answered the call to duty. Uh, 90% of those in my study uh, had volunteered in August or September, or they were already in the regular or the territorial army. Those who couldn't wait to get to the front and get the commissions, which by virtue of being well-educated middle-class boys were undoubtedly their right, they joined up as privates, primarily in the Artist Rifles in 28th London. They all went on to regular or temporary commissions. Of the 86 uh, who are now encompassed in my study, 84 were officers, only two were privates, uh, and at least one of those was clearly by choice. There were many older men uh, who came back. They were in the Special Reserve or the militia, came back. They were dug out of retirement. They were known as dugouts at the time, uh, and they came back to serve uh, and died in the trenches during the course of the war. Only by January 1916 did the option go. Um, it became conscription. Uh, it wasn't volunteering anymore, it was conscription if you were between 18 and 42. Uh, and of course, ironically, it wasn't until January 1916 that everybody was issued with helmets. So people had been fighting for the best part of two years wearing soft caps uh, and comforters. Um, there was never a rugby battalion. You heard of sportsmen's battalions and footballers' battalions. They were formed at a later stage as almost like effectively pals' battalions, people with similar interests. The rugby players, go back at the top point, they'd already gone. They'd already volunteered. They were already serving. They were dispersed amongst the regiments, and therefore there was never enough of them to form a rugby battalion. The closest was uh, Edgar Mobbs, a uh, former Northampton and England winger, who was so outraged when the K-1, uh, Kitchener's call for the first 100,000 went out, that he was too old to be an officer. He enlisted as a private. He then helped to raise a battalion, which inevitably consisted of a number of rugby players that he knew, uh, but it wasn't entirely rugby players. And he later on became the commanding officer of that battalion and was killed at Zillabaker in 1917. The Barbarians still play a game against the East Midlands, the Edgar Mobbs Memorial game, and it's their longest standing fixture. Still play that every year. Like all good stories, it started with a mystery. This is the original mystery. Club founded in 1879 has a World War II memorial. Uh, one very famous name on that, which is Prince Alec Ob Alex Obolensky, the flying Russian winger who sort of shunted his hurricane off the end of Martlesham Heath runway and died in 1940. But there's no memorial to World War I. Now, surely that is a mistake. That's an error. People in those days made great care uh, of uh, establishing proper memorials. Why should this be? The theory is it was lost when the club moved in 1956 from Old Deer Park in Richmond to where it is now in Roehampton. And there is at least one very senior member of the club who actually claims to have put the memorial, which is a wooden plaque with names, onto the removal van. Nobody knows what happened to it after that. Uh, we don't know whether it made it off at the other end, or whether it got damaged, or what happened to it. But there is no memorial. There is therefore no role of honour. Um, the only clue I had to go on, which is the uh, report in the Richmond Twickenham Times from 1919, reporting the club's AGM that states that 72 died, and it details with great pride under the heading, a magnificent record, all of the medals they won, but there are no names mentioned at all. Uh, in those days, it seemed the men weren't important. Go back to my original sort of uh, statement about, forget about the weapons, the battles. You know, in those days, they didn't seem to worry about the men too much. They were just statistics and numbers. But I guess war can cause that type of blindness. What they actually said in 1919 in the AGM report is 60, 66 were dead, six were missing. By that point, missing was a euphemism for dead. We just can't find them. 
Um, so 72 was the total. Most of them inevitably came from this book, which is the Rotten Park Minute Book Number 3, dated from 1898 to 1914. But also some of them came from the very early days of the club, books one and two. The current total, as I stand here now and as you sit, um, and it's an unfortunate phrase, but I have 86 dead certs. People I have absolutely verified by research here and by sources uh, that are the right guy. I've got a number, a dozen or more, who are in rugby parlance on the bench. They're simply waiting that final bit of proof, usually an address match, uh, that confirms that the person on Commonwealth Wargraves is the same as the person in the club records. Um, the final toll, in my estimation, out of 350 people from the club who served, is between 90 and 100, which is a very, very high percentage indeed. But it's to do with you know, the social class of rugby and to do with the fact these are public school boys who are inevitably officers and the officers' death toll was much higher. How do I identify their names? I won't attempt to teach um, you to suck eggs because I'm sure you're all expert in this, but basically, thankfully, despite there's no uh, role of honour, uh, what we do still have is the club minutes and in those minutes they have the name, uh, the year in which they joined uh, and the meeting at which they were uh, proposed and elected, usually but not always their address and sometimes their school, which was terribly, terribly important in those days. Commonwealth Wargraves records, thank God, are actually online uh, and a fantastic resource it is too. So it was a question of could I achieve a match between the name and address given and the name and sometimes address given on CWGC. As you will know, they don't always have addresses or parents' addresses there, so you have to dig deeper. Uh, this is where I did a lot of my digging, as I did at the British Library and within the census. The Great War Forum, which I'm sure you're familiar with, is a fantastic resource of people who have an uh, astonishing amount of knowledge and wisdom and willing to impart it freely. Uh, newspapers and archives, whether online or whether uh, up at Collindale, De Ruvigny, um, the Marcus de Ruvigny's uh, book was a fantastic resource. Obviously, it's not comprehensive, but one or two of my guys turned up, and there are interesting facts that de Ruvigny has that further, you know, later historians completely seem to overlook, and I'll come to one example of that. The Bond of Sacrifice, um, schools, universities, local historians, when you can locate them, um, all of them founts of knowledge. Uh, memorial rolls all over the country, churches and uh, other institutions where these boys may have been involved. And also, uh, although to be honest I've never had a successful match from a telephone book, I've had one or two candidates eliminated by telephone books, but you can, get, you can drill right down to that level of detail. The joy of this, of course, is when you get relatives or descendants or what I call internet strangers to get in touch with. How do they get in touch with it? Well, the first thing I did, I started this project in August 2009. It was not going to be a book when I started it. It was a, an educational project for my junior team of under-15s at Rostin Park that I had decided I was going to take to France to see the battlefields. We were going to play rugby there and beat the French, which is very important. And they would learn a little bit about remembrance, which to me is very important, and I felt it should be to them. In order to give them something to look at, I started the research on my players, and I created a very badly uh, drawn website. It's still there. It's called rugbyremembers.co.uk, um, and it hasn't been touched since I started to write the book, but it's an interesting period piece, shall we say. But a lot of the information was on there. I also got the boys themselves to look up, uh, to find out about their own uh, ancestors, uh, their forebears, and put their stories up, which again was absolutely fascinating. You'll see some very interesting things there. French, German, English, uh, you know, quite a few generals. 
only when I'd done this and only when I'd had relatives who contacted me through that website and said, that's my great uncle there, I've got his diary, would you like it? Only then, upon request, did I consider writing a book. I'm just going to do very quickly, um, when, when we were on tour, we had a very moving memorial service um, briefly before the game we played in the French military chap came along in full uniform, full regalia, uh, and he gave a little speech, uh, which actually wasn't a little speech because the French do like to go on a bit, but the substance of his speech was that rugby and warfare share a common language, but at the end of the day they're very different things. And I was inspired by that, I sat down and the first thing I wrote was a preface. Bear in mind the book is called The Final Whistle, so the preface is called The First Blow. I want you, if you will, to close your eyes and listen to how I've written this because what I'm trying to capture is that ambivalence, that ambiguity. Is this a rugby game or is it an attack? So if you just close your eyes and listen. When the time came for the whistle to blow, they were glad. The shrill note hung in the damp air and in the moment's hesitation before they started, all time was suspended and every breath was held. The waiting was finally over and all they had trained for now lay in front of them. Their great game was now about to kick off on this field and their greatest hope was for victory. The captain looked along his line to the left and right and saw that his men were ready. They had all worked hard for this since training had begun. They were fit in wind and limb and eager to get stuck in. The mud on their boots, which they never could shake off, no longer felt so heavy. He had talked to them quietly, each man in his turn, no need for big words, as each knew his job and what he had to do. The big men felt strong, relishing the scrimmage to come, their faces set and determined. The faster men were looking to stretch their legs and show their pace in attack. In their eyes he could see the excitement and the nervousness. No man on his team wanted to let the side down. If they had fears, this was the worst of them. Most of all, they were eager to take the fight to the opposition. This was their first taste of the game. The side they faced was unknown to them, although its reputation was fearsome. Their captain raised his arm to signal readiness, to steady the impatient, and waited for the moment. His own heart battering so loud in his chest, he wondered that his men could not hear it. He placed the whistle to his lips and blew. Okay, you can open your eyes again. What I hope to demonstrate there is that the language of rugby and warfare are very closely aligned. But only at the end, when you realise, well, hang on, the captain doesn't blow the whistle, the referee does, do you perhaps realise they're going over the top? The last international. Uh, this is the game about to be played this weekend, uh, England against France. Uh, in April 1914, it was played in Paris, in a very cold Paris in April. You can see there are no leaves on the trees. Of the 30 players who took the field that day, and there are no substitutes in rugby in those days, 11 were dead by 1918. Uh, three of them, remarkably, uh, were from one small club in southwest London, Roslyn Park. Two of them, perhaps predictably uh, from England, uh, Arthur Harris and Jimmy Dingle. But there was also a Frenchman, Jean-Jacques Cornille de Bessac, uh, descended from a Napoleonic general. Quite an unusual combination. This was take away the capital letters in First World War, but this was a world war in one club. It was a global war. Players came from Australia, South Africa, India, Canada, Ceylon, even beyond the Dominions. One of my players, Bertram Faller, was uh, a commercial attaché in uh, Petrograd. 
and spent a very interesting couple of years before he came back to fight. Um, another boy uh, went off to Colombia, having played his last game in March 1914, went off on the steamer to Colombia, received a telegram that the war had broken out, he was in the reserve, he literally about turned, came back and was killed Battle of Luce, uh, storming the Hohen Hohenzollern Redoubt in 1915. Deaths on all fronts. The Western Front is the abiding image of uh, the First World War. You know, we all know those, you know, the, the pools, the stark, shattered trees, but it wasn't the only theatre, and it's often forgotten, it wasn't the only theatre. Nine of my guys died in Gallipoli, where the Kitchener's New Armies and the Territorials first got stuck in. Five of them died from various causes on the home front. Four in Mesopotamia, uh, modern-day Iraq, a very much a forgotten front. Um, four of them died out there. Egypt, Palestine, Ireland. It may surprise you to see Ireland considered a front. Certainly the Irish did, and one of my soldiers was, one of my guys was killed, the first British soldier to be killed on Easter Monday in the uh, Irish Rebellion of 1916. Italy, again, another forgotten front, and Greece. The first of the gang to die, Charles George Gordon Bailey, the name may ring a bell. George Gordon uh, of Khartoum was his great-uncle. Um, he unerringly followed his great-uncle's career path, um, Royal Engineers, Woolwich, Chatham, until in 1912 he decided to strike out on his own and qualify as a pilot, which he did at Hendon, uh, beco becoming the 441st qualified pilot uh, with the Aero Club. In those days, you paid for your own lessons and only if you qualified would the army pay back £75 of tuition costs. The Royal Flying Corps, uh, which started then, was of course part of the army. It wasn't an independent arm uh, service at this point. Charles Bailey, by my research, uh, and this was mentioned in De Rouvigny, but never since, including some very august historians who had never mentioned him, and I think it is a claim to fame, not one he would have wanted, he was the first British officer uh, and the first Royal Flying Corps pilot to be killed by enemy fire. Now, I haven't done the work to extend that to whether that means he was the first ever pilot to be killed by enemy fire. I don't know, to be honest, how many planes uh, were involved in warfare prior to 1914, but on the 22nd of August, near Mons, he was shot down by cannon fire after a bunch of very hopeful soldiers been popping at him with their rifles, but he was brought down by cannon fire. Um, he was, for the Germans, with ground communications not being what they are nowadays, he was the first proof in his British uniform uh, that British forces were on the continent fighting. As far as they were concerned, the French and the Belgians are in, they didn't know the British were. His death, it was extremely well documented at the time, but has com completely been forgotten uh, uh, since by various historians. Uh, and, and the inaccuracies that abound, there's a, there's a book at the moment by Patrick Bishop called Wings, where he's talking about his death, and, but apparently his co-pilot, supposedly, uh, was taken prisoner by the Germans and um, saw through the war. Nonsense. He was killed on the same day, and I haven't got the photo here, but there's, they were known as Black Angels, because when the plane crashed, uh, all that was left was the engine, the undercarriage, everything else was burned, and there were two charred bodies, both of which were buried. He's in Commonwealth War Graves Commission. Why Patrick Bishop thinks he survived the war, I do not know. Guy du Maurier, uh, another famous name, uh, Daphne's uncle. He joined the club in 1881. His sister actually married the club's founder, which is one way of getting into the first 15, I guess. He was a career soldier, um, played his last game against Maidstone in 1885, scored a try, and then went off in service of the Queen Empress to Burma, which we were trying to annex to the Raj at the time. 
and carried on and became Lieutenant Colonel Commanding Officer of the 3rd Fusiliers. His hair turned white in South Africa, supposedly. Now, my medical friends tell me there is no such thing as your hair turning white from shock. There are a number of things that do cause your hair to turn white, largely to do with age, but shock is not one of them. It is likely that that perhaps was embroidered by his rather creative family. He was, however, an accidental playwright. Uh, he came back from the Boer War convinced that Britain had become rather flabby and unprepared for a war that everybody speculated was going to happen. It would be a much bigger war and a war against fearsome opposition. Um, he therefore wrote in 1909 a play called An Englishman's Home which started or contributed to the general sense of alarm that war was coming and encouraged people to basically join the recently created territorial force. It was an absolute sensation playing in two theatres in the West End at the same time and on three regional tours simultaneously. And the Territorials actually uh, set up recruiting stations outside the theatres where it was playing. He was killed in Kemmel uh, in the Ypres in 1915 at the age of 49. He's the father of the house for my story uh, and the oldest uh, man in the book. Alec Todd. Cambridge, you'll see him, very handsome chap with a moustache, very tall, six foot two, very tall in those days. Three blues for Cambridge, he was a British lion in 1896. They weren't, the, they weren't British, uh, they, they were Anglo-Irish because the Welsh and the Scots didn't send him any that year. Uh, they weren't lions either, they weren't called the lions until 1930. But in 1896 he went and played out there. Four years later, only after getting his first two caps, or his only two caps for England, he went to fight in South Africa, so that's weird. You play rugby, four years later you're back there fighting. He was wounded twice, which is why he never played for England again. Uh, he did, however, play cricket, including against W.G. Grace, who was by that point in his 50s. Um, he was killed at Hill 60, um, east of Ypres, on, wounded on April 17th. He was shot through the neck, uh, taken to an advanced dressing station where he asked for a cigarette, which he smoked, despite having been shot through the neck. Uh, it was taken back to a casualty clearing station in Popperinga, where he died, which is proof that smoking kills if you needed it. Um, he's buried in Popperinga Cemetery. Uh, also, rather curiously, he's on the Menning Gate to those with no known grave. Uh, my speculation, having been to the cemetery in Popperinga, is that a shell hit it. was an awful lot of known unto God and known to be buried in this place graves there. So my theory is that it was, you know, Popperinga was in range, so it could easily have happened. There is his grave. Bear in mind, an England player white shirt, red rose. Um, again, it's a nice touch. You don't get those touches until you actually go and do the research, all very well being in a desk. That's him three days before he died uh, on leave in Ascot with his children, uh, and literally he was shot the day after he got back from leave. And this clock here, uh, London Bridge, that clock stopped at 11.47. Uh, it is on a branch of an off-licence, Oddbins. Um, it was originally the headquarters of the wine merchants, uh, Finlet and Mackie Todd, of which he was part of that family. Um, the clock stopped in the 1960s. The telegram which arrived at that office to announce his wounding was timed 11.47 uh, in 1915. Fantastic story until I was riding past on my scooter, only to find the clock said 2.30. Apparently Boris Johnson on his bike had been late for a meeting, looked up at the clock, was so outraged the clock had made him late, he decided to have it wound up and a man came down from Derby and so ruined a completely good story. Um, I, wrote, I wrote to Boris to tell him. Noel Oxland, uh, vicar's son uh, from Cumbria, um, actually born in Devon but his father was a Royal Naval Chaplain, went up to Alston in Cumbria. Durham School, Oxford University, played for Park and Richmond in those days, people played for whoever would give them a game. 
killed at Gallipoli. He was a friend of Jimmy Dingle, who you're just about to meet, who you saw in one of the early photographs of the England game, and uh, Noel, Noel Hodgson, who wrote uh, Before Action. Um, he, being a Cumbrian, he joined the Border Regiment, um, and he wrote a very famous poem called Outward Bound, um, which was published in the Times. You will find Outward Bound in many of the anthologies. It was not the title he gave. Uh, I'll read you very quickly the last stanza, uh, which makes it very, very clear. He wasn't necessarily expecting that he would come back. We shall pass in summer weather. We shall come at eventide, where the fells stand up together and all quiet things abide. Mixed with cloud and wind and river, sun distilled in dew and rain, one with Cumberland forever. We shall go not forth again. Uh, he sent that poem back to a lady friend, asked whether she could get it to the editor of the Times. His title was Farewell. He knew he may not come back. The Times, being the Imperial Thunderer, refused to have such defeatist nonsense and actually changed the title to Outward Bound. Uh, but it's really called Farewell. His best friend, Jimmy Dingle, took over from him as school captain at Durham. He was both pupil and teacher at Durham School. Um, a better rugby player, played for Oxford and England, uh, but also played for Park and Richmond alongside Noel Oxland, his friend. Captain of the East Yorkshire Regiment, also at Gallipoli. Um, the Gallipoli campaign, if you know, is a terribly tortuous and appallingly managed campaign. There is a moment when if he and his platoon had been able to keep a certain vantage point which they had taken, instead of being ordered to vacate it, he could have saved his friend's life. Uh, they wouldn't have known this, but it's one of the terrible ironies of war. The witness statements which I read here, again, where there was no body, and many of the bodies from Gallipoli didn't come back, there were witness statements taken, usually for prosaic purposes like life assurance affidavits. And one of them says, one of his privates says, he was a gentleman, and he even made tea for ten of us. And that, to me, is a remarkable example of, if you like, an expression of common humanity and decency between officers and men under the most terrible conditions. Robert Dale, an unusual character, and one who I only literally, as the deadline hit me, finally found out uh, enough about to write a chapter. He was a lawyer, as was his father. He worked for his father's firm. At some point, he suddenly decided, and it looks like it was roughly 1912, to give it all up and become an artist. Because by the time he uh, attests for the artist rifles, he's describing himself as writer, artist, painter. When he goes to a regular commission with the Manchesters, he still describes himself as, uh, as, a, as a creative bohemian character, as an artist. When men of a certain age do mad things, there's usually a woman involved. I suspect it's because he, he met a lady called Irene Moore. I'm never quite sure how to pronounce her name, but she was the foremost exponent of Greek classical dance. And she became his muse, and I think he gave up the law. Uh, he had an uneasy relationship with his father, as did his brother. Uh, his brother was called James Dale, uh, and actually became Dr. Jim Dale in um, Mrs. Dale's diary. Uh, he was an actor, tried to make his uh, living as an artist, failed, became an actor, and wrote a very, uh, shall we say, self-serving autobiography. He, after serving at Gallipoli, trained as a pilot with the Royal Flying Corps, but ended up as a kite balloon observer. By one of the serendipitous twists that abound in this book, where the kite balloon observers were trained and the depot was on the, the flat polo fields of the Roehampton Club, which is where Roslyn Park now play their rugby. So it comes full circle. That um, painting by Sir John Lavery is in the Imperial War Museum actually shows the encampment uh, of the kite balloon depot on the polo field. And that's where nowadays you will see green field and rugby posts at the end of it. 
rather curious. His father was a bit of a martinet of RNC, on, uh, didn't get on very well with his wife's family. On the way to her funeral, uh, the boys and he were walking along past Wimbledon Common and he espied a rugby game and muttered something and, and walked off to the rugby game and didn't go to the funeral. The wife was an interesting character. She had her leg amputated on the kitchen table at their house in Cottenham Park Road as well, so an unusual family. Arthur Harrison, VC, um, again another England player, won two caps in 1914, uh, career naval officer, became lieutenant commander eventually. Uh, he was at the Battle of Jutland, which as you will know is a massive score draw between the Germans and the Brits, but the Germans never really ventured out of port again. Um, so the naval officers, particularly the more aggressive rugby playing ones, uh, were itching to come to close quarters with the enemy. He volunteered for the Zeebrugge raid in 1918, which essentially was a suicide mission, and he was killed storming the mole. Uh, from HMS Vindictive. He was actually, when this, if you know the story of um, the Zeebrugge raids, you know, the, 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 the wind changed and blew away the smokescreen which had been protecting the Vindictive, which was causing the diversion while the other uh, cruisers nipped round the corner and scuttled in the mouth of the canal. So at 50 yards, the German guns opened up point-blank range. He was hit by a shell splinter, taken below, assumed to be dead. When they'd all stormed onto the mole, all of a sudden he's there amongst them with his jaw broken, couldn't speak because his jaw was broken, but you know, he was then cut in half by machine gun fire. Body was lost in the harbour, uh, awarded a posthumous VC, uh, and all this, of course, happened on St George's Day. Jean-Jacques Conil de Bessac, his opposite number in the French team that day, also killed that year uh, in June. He was, a, as a quite an aristocratic character, seemed to be a perpetual student. He played for the Bordeaux University Club, uh, he was a student of philosophy, by the way. He won five caps for France. He came on tour to England, played at, at Richmond and at Roslyn Park. And when he came over as a student in 1910, he joined Roslyn Park and played for them then. Um, he also played two wartime tests, if you like, uh, for France against the Anzacs. He was a tank commander. Um, he was killed, or well, he died of wounds in an ambulance on the way to Compiègne, where the armistice was signed. Uh, and again, uh, serendipity and sad ironies, if you like, Compiègne, which is where we played our memorial tour with my under-15s. Charles Button. Not only do I have a Victoria Cross, but I have a French Croix de Guerre. Um, this was not a public schoolboy. Um, he was born in Pembrokeshire in Wales to an engineering father and joined the HAC initially, uh, full commission in the, uh, the Royal Field Artillery. And in the Kaiserschlacht, the um, battle on the Aisne in 27th of May, at Wadi Bout, um, he was involved in a last-ditch and hopeless defence of his guns against the stormtroopers, and the French awarded him and the whole of his battery the Croix de Guerre posthumously. Um, that's immortalised in Terence Cuneo's painting of the Gibraltar battery. His body was never found. He's on the Soissons Memorial. Some numbers. The youngest was 20 years old. Uh, the oldest was 49, Guy de Maurier, you've met him. If you remember the difference between your medians and your averages, the median age was 23, average age slightly higher, largely as a result of people like Guy de Maurier and Alec Todd, who was 41 when he was killed. The professions, as you'll see, rugby, predominantly middle-class sport. We even had one perfumer. The perfumer uh, was a rifleman in the Queen's Mes Westminster Rifles, clearly did not want a commission. He'd been educated at Ratcliffe and Ampleforth, could have had a commission for the asking, clearly did not want the responsibility. I've been given his diaries and his letters from the front, and there are several references to a friend of his who has a commission, and he does not want that responsibility. Worth saying, he was actually a very happy soldier. He was enjoying his war uh, until the 1st of July 1916, when he was killed at Goncourt on the first day of the Somme, and he's on the Tietbal Memorial.
There are many others uh, completely lost on those memorials. Um, of my 86, 34 of the bodies were never found. That's two whole teams and substitutes, some 40% of them. And you can see the awful statistics. Basra, 41,000 who never came back from Mesopotamia in those days, and four of my men are out there. Uh, what did Rostin Park do? Um, during the war, there were no teams. Rugby had been abolished on the 4th of September 1914 when the RFU basically somewhat belatedly, because there were no players left anyway, but somewhat belatedly cancelled the season. Bear in mind football kept going, but rugby cancelled the season 4th of September. The management of Rostin Park, the administra administrators, kept subs going, even asking for subs from men who were at the front. My perfumer writes very amusingly to his father, uh, that he's received a letter from the club chasing his subscription, asked his father could he stand him for it because it's difficult to get money back from the front and he'll pay him back when he comes back. Of course he never makes it back. Uh, but they kept the subs going in order to, to mount rugby games in, at Old Deer Park. Initially for those boys who were essentially being trained up to go to the front from their public schools and rugby was deemed to be a very good way of getting them fit and inculcating the right sort of offensive spirit uh, into these boys. And then secondarily, as the war went on, services games uh, for rehab and also for R&R, &R, for these soldiers back from the front. There's some extraordinary stories. The, I mean, the, even at the front, they, they rarely had the right sort of kit. You know, when they came back here, they didn't have rugby boots and things like that. The Australians played barefoot, didn't have rugby boots. Why would they? All the gate proceeds from these games went to various military charities, including the, uh, the Star and Garter. So arguably, Rostin Park was the help for heroes of its day and had a major role in the war. You'll have heard that phrase, the lost generation, uh, an awful lot. Um, it's Gertrude Stein's phrase. It doesn't refer to those lost in the war. It refers to those war-interrupted survivors of the war who were damaged and drifting through the 1920s, rather like uh, Fitzgerald's um, beautiful and damned generation. Um, but if Rostin Park did have a lost generation, then this is it. The 1909-10 team, you've met Charles Bailey, uh, Wilfred Jessen, uh, a cricketer as well as rugby player who was killed in Mesopotamia. Purser, um, another Trinity man by the way. Glover, uh, killed in France in 1915. Noel Horton, um, rose to be commanding officer of the Sher uh, his battalion in the Sherwoods. And Dennis Monaghan, uh, a tank commander, uh, started off in the Royal Irish Rifles, was wounded uh, on the first day of the Somme, uh, joined the tank regiment uh, and at Cambrai he was a reconnaissance officer was out reconnoitring the ground on which his tank uh, battalion would travel, walk, three of them walking line abreast, and a shell went between uh, them and neatly removed his head. And he was buried where he fell. This talk was recorded on the 19th of February 2013 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.